0: And start off with, if you can remember back this long, because this is like week 15, this is a while ago. Um, the, the, uh, the thing started off with just kind of the, the ground rules. The ground rules are there is a God, and the Bible is God's word. Because if we can't agree on those things, nothing else I say is going to matter. And then we went from there to the next thing, which we basically talked about God for six weeks. God the Father, God the Son. Uh, actually, eight weeks, because we spent six weeks on the Holy Spirit. Uh, spoiler alert, I didn't get through the Holy Spirit, I have more to say, but I know Pentecost is coming, so I've got to save something for then. We'll come back to the Holy Spirit uh, in the upcoming weeks. But uh, we finally kind of finished up that part, and I know that we've kind of been going through some theology kind of stuff, and theology isn't fun. Uh, and I, everybody's been pretty gracious. I really enjoyed that you know, sermon. That was interesting. But I know that us being us, you know, eventually uh, we come around the point where, okay, that's been fun talking about God and all that, but hey, what about, you know, Whatever or once in a while, I want to talk about me, want to talk about I, want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. So you know, let's talk about us, right? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start a little bit about talking about me, talking about us, talking about the human side of this. And before I get into the heavy theology of it, which is a really fun sermon, sermon called The Total Depravity of Man, before we get into that, I wanted to talk about. Something is that I've noticed in my life and I want to talk about my Christian walk just a little bit See if maybe you relate to it uh, last night It was interesting to watch the expressions of the people uh, But just to start out I have kind of learned a lot of things in my life uh, I'm pretty much self-taught in everything and I've learned some things I'm going to actually focus just now on one thing I learned playing the guitar But it could have been anything because I've noticed a pattern in things I learned First of all, there's always a cost to learning whenever you're going to learn there's a cost involved it might actually be a physical cost. It might be pain. Uh, with guitar, that's what it is. Because before you can play a guitar, you've got to get calluses on your fingers. You've got to get strengthened fingers. And if you're not willing to pay the pain, you're never going to learn. So your desire to learn has to be greater than the pain. That's like the key to learning. That's the first key to learning. Anything you want to learn, if you want to know why you're not learning something, is the desire is not there. You have to have enough desire to get over the pain because there's always a pain point that you have to get through. But with guitars specifically, uh, you, after you get to the point, and it's relatively quickly, where you've got calluses on your finger and you have strength in your fingers, you can kind of start forming maybe a few chords, like maybe three. It's amazing how many songs you can play with three chords. And then you kind of get to this point where like, you know, yeah, I can play the guitar. You're not embarrassed to leave it out in your room in case somebody sees it and they ask you. Because yeah, I know a couple songs. I can do Kumbaya, you know, or something. I know three songs. I'm pretty good at that. And so you kind of get to this point after you've gone through the pain where you hit this thing called a plateau. And I'm not making this up. This is something that everybody kind of knows and talks about. There's these learning curves and learning plateaus. And this is sort of what it looks like because you have this, this moment where you're learning something and then you hit this plateau and you're okay there for a while. And some people were always okay there. They kind of quit at that point. Good, you know, check that off, move on. Some people say, well, that was okay. Now I want to go to the next level. And now you have another pain factor you have to get through in order to get there. And then you level off again. And that's kind of how you learn. And you go through these plateaus until you finally stop. And that usually, it's just, it's not like most things, you can't just learn everything. It's just, it's good enough for you. I'm, I'm good enough. I'm, I'm at the point where I want to be. And then you have some people who are otherworldly, like Phil Kage playing the guitar, where after he's learned everything humans know, he starts pressing the limits of human ability. You know, there are those strange people who just never, ever, ever stop. But most of us do. We get to some point, we say, I'm, I'm good here. And so that's been how I've learned everything in my life. And I've, you know... I've learned a lot of things in my life because I'm old. You know, there's a lot of different things that I've learned and this has always been a pattern. I see this everywhere in my life where I have this pain, plateau, pain, plateau, pain, plateau. Everywhere in my life I see this except in my Christian walk. I don't see it in my Christian walk. My Christian walk looks a lot more like this. Uh, Now, this is actually from Greek mythology. I was surprised that no one last night knew who I was talking about. Has anybody here today heard of the... Greek mythology, the story of Sisyphus. Anybody? You were there last night too, but yes. No one. Okay, one, one, okay. So let me give you a Greek mythology lesson. I thought, uh, I was going to say, oh yeah, we know. Okay, so Sisyphus, according to Greek mythology, is actually called the sinner. And he was sentenced to this. He had to push his rock up a hill. At the end of every day, the rock rolled back down to the bottom of the hill, and he had to start all over again the next day. Now, now everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's my life. You know, I kind of, now I know what that is. That's my life. But that's actually a Greek mythology thing, and that's how my Christian walk has sort of been you know, where instead of hitting these plateaus and stopping and plateaus and stopping, I'm just like constantly trying to climb this hill, pushing this hard rock, and every so often it just rolls over, over top of me, back down to the bottom of the hill, because it's like, okay, I got saved, and now I'm supposed to be righteous, and I'm trying to be righteous, and I'm making some progress, and then all of a sudden I sin again, and boom, there goes the rock, you know, and that's kind of been my life, and I was wondering why, why is this unlike anything else I've ever tried to learn, you know, everything else i try to learn, it may be hard, but I eventually... Hit these plateaus, and then I can rest for a while. But you can't rest as a Christian, can you? You can't ever say, "Yeah, I'm a good Christian," because then you got that pride, that sin, and the rock fall down. You know, you have to start all over again. And so, you know, why is that? And I thought, well, okay, I, I think I finally figured it out. Because everything else I've learned may be hard, but Christianity isn't hard. It's impossible. It really is. Christianity and righteousness, I mean, it's impossible. We know that from the beginning, because this is like a foundation of of Christianity in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We all know this verse. This is like a fundamental verse of Christianity. Everybody's sinned. No one's righteous. No, not one. And Paul said, you know, if anybody would be righteous, it would be me, and I'm not righteous. So we know that everybody's sinned, and everybody needs Jesus, and we, we get the redemption. And so we know that's true, but it's not just that's true. It's not just the past sins. Come on, we're talking about the present sins and the future sins, because everybody I know will tell you, yeah, I sin every day. I mean, I've heard Christians say things almost like they're bragging about it. Yeah, I've sinned a thousand times a day. Wow, a thousand. You know, who counts that high? I mean, hundreds of times, whatever. Because it's not just what we do as Christians, right? It's what we think too. Jesus tells us that here in Matthew 5. He's talking to the Pharisees who thought they never sinned. He goes, look, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Yeah, they heard it. It's one of the Ten Commandments, right? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I'm like, man, just looking? Are you kidding me? Who's safe now? And I grew up in the 70s, folks, you know, it was during the sexual revolution. Everybody looked. I mean, looking is now considered sin. There is no chance that I had of ever being righteous if just looking counts. You know, what's in my head, what well, my thoughts, you know, you see, he goes on and says, if you hate your brother, it's the same thing as killing him. I have three brothers hate my brothers. That's like a good day, Hit only one brother. I mean, how in the world can we possibly live a righteous life when what we think and what we, th- you know, they just forget it. There's absolutely no way, but that's okay. Christianity kind of accepts that. We even have bumper stickers that say that, look, Christians aren't perfect. We're just forgiven. We accept the fact that we have sinned and we accept the fact that we're going to go sin. But we also accept the fact that Jesus died for our sins. We believe that, so our sins are forgiven. And I'm not exactly sure when Christianity just became a struggle to be righteous while still committing sin, but that's kind of what Christianity's become. I need to be righteous, but I'm going to sin. It's like I go to God and I said, God, I I, I need to ask for forgiveness for this sin, and I'll see you tomorrow to ask for forgiveness again, because I already know I'm going to sin tomorrow. It's like we accept this whole thing. And I'm, I'm wondering about that because this is kind of how I grew up. Now, maybe you didn't. You know, I'm actually seeing some, some looks. I get these looks a lot when I'm preaching. Like, why are you the preacher? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't say I was the most righteous among you. I just had the microphone. I don't know. But, you know, this is how I grew up. And I'm, my dad was my preacher, right? So I grew up in his home. And maybe this isn't what he taught, but this is what I learned. This is what, this is what I came away with. I'm a sinner. I'm going to be a sinner. But God saves Jesus saves my sins. It sucks to be someone who doesn't know Jesus because their sin, just like I am, but their sins aren't forgiven. And it's like, wow, when when did Christianity become that? I don't know. But more than that, if you think about it, we've said it's impossible. How can you be condemned for not doing something that's impossible? How's that fair? How's that moral? How's that just? I don't know if anybody else ever thinks these things. Maybe I'm making you all uncomfortable right now, but have you ever thought about that? How could that be? That's like, I'll, I'll tell you what it's like. You know, they got, they're doing all this row work down there, um, running in the It's like a truck. I saw a truck there, and it had got its wheel off the road. And it got in a ditch, right? And the guy's spinning his tire. Because uh, people think trucks can go anywhere, <laughs> but they can't. So it's spinning. So I'm saying, suppose that guy who was sitting there with a spinning wheel had a boy in a truck with him. He's like 10-year-old, his son. And they get out and they look at the wheel. Oh, son, look, that wheel's stuck in that rut. <clears throat> We're going to, have to get this out. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up in the cab and hit the gas. When I hit the gas a little bit, I want you to pick that corner up and push it back until the tire hits the pavement, and we'll get right out of here. And the 10-year-old boy who weighs 87 pounds soft and wet <laughs> looks at his dad and says, I can't pick up the side of the truck and push it to the road. He says, don't tell me what you can't do. I want you to do it. I can't. I physically can't do it. If you don't do it, I'm going to beat you. I mean, how in the world would that be fair, just, or right? And we take that kid away from that dad. and we, we wouldn't let a man beat a kid for not being able to do something which is impossible to do. How in the world can God condemn you to hell for something that we all say, well, it's impossible? We can't do that. I don't know if that ever makes you uncomfortable, but it makes me uncomfortable. But here's what I've come to realize as I got older. I must have it wrong somewhere. Because this can't be right. Now, we know that hell exists because Jesus told it does, and we know that redemption exists because D- Jesus died, but somewhere, the way the dots got connected for me anyway, can't be right, because this can't be right. This can't be God. God wouldn't be like that. And, and what is this idea of righteousness that we can't obtain and we shouldn't even try for? Because that seems to be what it is. You know, just, you know, just stop. You're not going to ever be righteous. Just ask God. And there's a whole group of Christians, by the way, who believe all my sins are forgiven anyway. Just go ahead and have fun. And it's called radical grace. All my sins are already forgiven. Say anything I'm going to commit, God's already forgiven me for. Just go ahead and live your life. Just be happy because God wants you to be happy. That can't be right either. So what is right? And that's kind of where I want to start here because we have this relationship with God that's kind of weird if you think about it. And all we really know about it, what's in the Bible and what people tell us is in the Bible. That's really all we know, unless you've lived it yourself. And so I started asking this question, well, how did Jesus evangelize? Because whoever evangelized me didn't do it right. And I don't know, I just didn't understand it, or they explained it wrong. But something's missing here, because my concept cannot be right. It just can't be. So I'm thinking, well, let me take a look at how Jesus did it, because he'd be the standard, right? Whatever Jesus taught must be right. And so I'm gonna go take a look at it. now. We don't normally think as Jesus is an evangelizer. You know, we think we all evangelize for Jesus, but he was the original evangelizer, folks. The first person ever saved was saved by him. And so how did he do it? Well, we see him do it, and that's what's beautiful. The Bible actually shows us how he does it. And I think it's a little bit instructive to watch. How he goes about making the first Christian—you know—it wasn't called that then; it was just called a follower. But uh, I want to—I want to take a look at it. I know you know this this passage because he goes, and uh, he he goes and gets his very first convert, is the first disciple that he calls a guy we know named Simon, who later changes his name to Peter. And I want to show you. Now we know that this story takes place because we've seen it in the movies and things, and actually it takes place in all the Gospels, but. Um, I'm going to be in Luke's gospel. Now, this happens in Luke chapter 5, in our Bible, chapter 5. Remember, there are no chapters in the real Bible. They don't have any chapters. They just go one to the other. But the actual story starts the previous chapter. If you, if you Google, you know, uh, Jesus calling Luke... Scripture, uh, you will find Scripture, but i will take you to Luke 5. You've got to go back to Luke 4 to see what really happens. So let me set the, set the scene here for you. What's happened so far in Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke is uh, he lived for 30 years being a carpenter, and then at age 30 about, he uh, goes and gets baptized by John the Baptist. He's then led up into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days, and he comes out and he just starts preaching. So his ministry has officially started. But Jesus' main teaching is not going to be to the crowd. It's going to be to 12 men. And he knows that. And so he's going to go start calling these 12 men. They're going to be critical in his message because he's going to teach these 12 men and then they're going to teach the rest of the world. That's how Jesus really works. He spends all this time with, the, with these, these 12 guys. The first guy he's going to pick is Simon. He's never met him before. Simon doesn't live in the same city he lives in. He happens to be there right now where Simon lives because he was preaching. And that's where the story picks up. So then he, Jesus, got up and left the synagogue where he was preaching and entered Simon's home. Wait a minute, what? I love how Luke just puts it there like uh, he went to Simon's place. He's never been there before. What do you mean he went to Simon's place? What's he doing there? How did he get there? Why did he go there? We don't know that. We don't know these things. But I think it's pretty clear the Holy Spirit has told him who he's supposed to be calling. He has a word of knowledge or whatever you want to call it. And he knows he has to go call Simon as his first disciple. And so he goes to his house because he knows where that is too. Again, the word of knowledge. He goes there. I believe the only reason he's there in chapter four is to call Simon. The problem is he's not there. <laughs> that's, a, that's a problem. You know, Jesus shows up. Simon's not there. And so he gets there. And Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Now it makes sense why Simon's not there, right? His, mom, his mother-in-law's there. She's got a fever. Peter's out fishing. He might as well go fishing. <laughs> My mother in laws here with a fever. Might as well go fishing. But actually, I think we're not going to give Peter enough credit there if we say that. Because we have to understand that, first of all, his mother-in-law probably lived with him all the time. Peter is a blue-collar guy, right? He's a fisherman. And in those days, the blue-collar people, they, they didn't have nice setups. They, they worked for a living. And everybody in the family worked for a living. So if mother-in-law lived there, mother-in-law worked there. That's how that worked. Everybody worked. Everybody had to do it. Probably not only does she do chores around the house, but most women would do something else on the side. You know, they do sewing or they make baskets or you know, they do cleaning for somebody, uh, sell pots. They would all do something to try to earn a little bit of money on the side. So the mother-in-law would have been doing that too. We don't know what she does, but she would have been doing something. And now she's in bed with a high fever that's been there for some time. Well, now Simon's wife has to take care of Simon's mother-in-law. So whatever money she was eking out with her existence, she also isn't making. And we have medical bills on top of that. And I think Simon's just doing what us guys do. I got to pick up some extra work. You know, I got moonlight. I got to make some more money. Look at this. No one else is doing I got to go out and make more money now. Well, Peter's a fisherman. How do fishermen make money? They fish. So he says, well, I guess I got to start fishing at night, too. So he fishes during the day, goes home, eats, crashes, gets back up, and fishes all night. I need to make more money. I need to somehow pay for the problem that has hit the family, which is this illness, right? And so I believe that's why he's out. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we know he's not there. They, and I want you to picture this from, from like, Simon's um, wife here. Because here she is, worried sick about her mother. No one's been able to help her. Knock, knock, knock. They open the door. That's Jesus Christ. <laughs> Like, this guy that she's only heard about because he's just kind of starting. Like, oh, you're the guy who heals people. Oh, wow. What, what a great coincidence. I need, I need to have some healing. So they ask him to help. And so he goes over, rebukes the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them, which like I said before, I think that means that Simon Peter had an Italian mother-in-law because as soon as she gets up, Oh, I feel better. I'm going to go feed people. You, gonna, you, you, you look hungry. You need to eat, Rabbi. And so she immediately starts cooking food and feeding the people, right? That's what she does. So, um, but I, I want to I not pass over this moment before I, I say that if Peter's out trying to make money, because he said, I have to do this. We've got a problem, and you know, we have this problem. We have to make money. Uh, then he's out trying to fix the problem. But he really isn't, is he? He's out fixing the symptom of the problem. The fact they're low on money isn't really the problem. The problem is his mother-in-law has a fever that won't go away. That's the problem. But Peter can't do anything about that problem. So Peter does what guys do. We throw ourselves in our work. Well, I'll just go make more money then. And he goes out there. And sometimes this happens in our life. I want to show you this. Sometimes we miss God's solution because we're too busy trying to solve the problem ourselves. Peter's gone. When Jesus Christ, the one who can solve his problem, shows up, he's not even there. He misses the miracle. Jesus' first miracle is done in his house. He doesn't even see it. Bet you that one aided him for a while, the rest (laughs) of his life. I can't believe I missed this miracle, you know? And so uh, sometimes that happens to us, though. We get so focused. God can't help me. I need to fix this myself. God shows up to help, and I don't have time for that, God, right now. I'm trying to get, you know, this thing fixed. However, we're going to do it. Anyway, so after that happens, word spreads. Wait a minute. The healers here just healed somebody, and people come flocking in. So as the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with all kinds of diseases brought them and laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them and demons were coming out of many because many sickness were caused by demons. He's rebuking them. Now I want to show you something. I'm going to hark back to last week's sermon because there is a group of people who believe the only purpose for miracles is signs and wonders to authenticate the messenger. i want to show you that that's not what Jesus is doing here. Uh, demons were coming out and they started saying, you are the son of God and he rebuked them and will not allow them to speak. Now, that's not what you do if you're trying to have signs and wonders. Signs and wonders, you want everybody speaking because you're trying to authenticate you. He's making them be quiet. He says it's not time for anybody to know that. The only reason he is healing these people is because he has compassion on them. He feels sorry for them. And a lot of times God will perform miracles in our life just because he has compassion on us. And that's all he needs, right? So he, he does that and he heals him all night. We don't know where Jesus sleeps. I hope he slept at Simon's house. You know, they put up something for him to sleep on. But when the day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. He healed all night. He goes to sleep. He wakes up. What's the first thing he does? He goes off to get with his father. We talked about this last week too. Very first thing he does, goes off to get with the Lord. And crowds were looking for him everywhere. So it wasn't secluded enough. They found him. And they said, well, you can't leave us. You've got to stay here. So it's just awful to me what Jesus has to go through to make one disciple. I mean, now he's slogging through all this, right? But he continues on his mission. And they keep following him. They're pressing in on him. It's like, you know, you're a great teacher. We need a rabbi. We, stay here with us. Stay here with us. And as it happens, while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing, just so happened, by the very lake that Peter had fished on all night. Just so happens. Jesus knew where he was going. He'd been heading there this whole time. The crowd's talking to him the whole time. And he sees two boats at the edge of the lake. Those two boats, by the way, belong to Peter and his partner. He has a fishing partner. And he sees those. But the fishermen had gotten out of them, and they were washing their nets. Now, we're going to find out in the next verse or two that they spent all night fishing and caught nothing. But you still have to clean your nets. Because you mean, when we say caught nothing, we mean you caught no fish. You still catch seaweed, driftwood, bottles, you know, all kinds of things, boots, pulling them old sandals. You catch stuff in your net. And you have to get that out, you know, kind of in snails and things you didn't want. You got to get those out of the net. And that's what they're doing. They're cleaning their nets after a night of failure. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But so they're sitting there, and I don't know if you've ever been there. Some of you have. I know some of you have pulled midnight shifts up all night. That's a miserable place, right? Especially when you've got somebody else there. You don't even want to talk to each other. Because the only thing you're going to say is going to be uncharitable at best, right? You're just angry because it was frustrating all night, and you're tired, and you know that headache, those, those of you who work midnight, that you get when you've been up all night, that, that, special, that special, wonderful, I haven't slept headache. That's what they're feeling. And they're sitting there cleaning these nets in silence, miserable at these nets that caught nothing, which, by the way, had probably never happened to them in their entire life. They never had a night like this. This was the most horrible night in the world. And so Jesus has walked with the crowd. He sees them. He sees the boats. And he goes and gets into one of the boats that just happened to be Peter's. He knows who it is. He knows exactly which boat he has climbed into. And by the way, this cracks me up because I spent a whole summer crewing on a a sailboat in Texas. And I spent a lot of time on boat docks. I cannot imagine what would happen if a stranger had just climbed up and climbed in somebody else's boat. I mean, especially in Texas, somebody would have gotten shot. I mean, I can't. I can't imagine. You know, and here's Peter. He's cleaning his boat. He's trying to ignore the crowd because they're too loud for him anyway. And some guy just climbed into his boat. I want you. He's picking up his net. Ho 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 ho! Running after him. You know, you you my boat. Get get out of my boat. And you know, if I were writing this script, which I'm not. But if I were writing a script, I'd have Jesus say something funny like, oh, I'm sorry, is this a fishing boat? I was wondering because there's no fish inside. I just know there's no fish here at all. Seems to be devoid of fish. Were you using this? I didn't know. You know, I couldn't tell. But Jesus isn't snarky like me, so we don't know what he said, right? But he comes up and Peter like throws his net in the boat, climbs in the boat after him. And then he pushed out and he says, Can, I just need to speak to the crowd. You know, the boat wasn't being used. And so they push it out. And he makes it look like an amphitheater, and he preaches. He preaches to the crowd that gathers there. Now, he's not just preaching to the crowd. He's preaching to Peter, because this is who he came for. This is the man he's been looking for for two days. You know, where's Waldo? Where's Peter? He's been looking for two days where he is. He has him there, captive audience. He can't leave. He's in his boat. And he's preaching, and I wish I knew what he said. I wish we had Jesus' sermon, because it must have been amazing. And we don't know how long he preached, But he preached to people, and eventually they all got satisfied with what he said. He came to a stopping point, and they all went away. And there's Peter staring at this guy. Now, Peter was a good Jew. Sometimes that gets lost. Peter was a good Jew. We know, for example, he always ate kosher. He never violated that. He he, he, he followed the laws of the Sabbath. He did the best he could do as a Jew in those days. He was a good Jew. But this man was preaching in a way he'd never heard before. He's preaching with an authority and assurance that he just never heard. He's also preaching a message that he had never heard before. Because the message in the day of Peter, and this is true, the message of the day of Peter was that you'll never be righteous enough. Thank God you have us. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes and the, and the Sadducees, that's what they preached. Thank God you have us. Because you'll never be righteous enough. Now what had happened, if, if, if you look at the history of the temple, was when God founded it, he put his guy in charge of it, a guy named Aaron. And he said, his line will always be the head of my temple. And that's how the Old Testament ends. You know, the fade to black, come up on the New Testament, and Aaron's line is no longer in charge of the temple. They didn't care. They let anybody in. And a whole new group of people came in, and they changed everything. They made everything. They they took the scriptures, and they added things to it. And they made it in such a way that unless you're a full-time Pharisee or a full-time, let's say, priest of some sort, you couldn't be righteous. If you had to work for a living, you just couldn't be righteous. You had to do this full-time. It is our full-time job to be righteous. And they taught that if God ever delivers us from Rome, it'll be because of our righteousness. So you all need to support us and hope our righteousness can carry you. And they had all kinds of different things they did. They'd come and they'd offer some sacrifices and they'd pay money. Oh boy, there was a temple tax. Did you know that? Forget tithe, there was a tax. If you live in this area, you got taxed or you know, you're not going to be part of the righteous. So there's all kind of money they would collect from the people, and they liked the fact, actually, that Rome was in charge because they could blame the people for it. It's your sin that's why Rome's in charge of us. And so they, they were just using this as a means of making money, and it was a ve- there was no such thing as a poor Pharisee. <laughs> just like you've never seen a, fat, uh, never seen a skinny priest. You know, I mean, there was no such thing as a poor Pharisee. And, and so this was the system that was in place. And Peter did the best he could. He was a blue-collar guy. So he could come and he could pay his money. He could do his offering, but he would never be fully righteous. They were counting on the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees to save them. They were, which is why when Jesus comes by later and says, well, unless you're more righteous than they are, you're going to hell. People thought, well, who can be more righteous than them? And they thought they were the pinnacle. And Jesus says, oh, they're not even close. And so this is the world that Jesus, that, that Peter lived in, right? And what Peter lived in was a world that he had his real world where he had a work. And then he had God's world when he went to the temple. And that's not so different, I don't think, from a lot of us. We have the real world and we have God's world. We come to church, you know, we do things, we say things that we would never say out there. And then we go out there and we do things and say things we would never do in church. We have the separation. That was actually set up that way in Peter's day. They actually wanted that separation. And so uh, Peter, you know, Peter listens to this guy preach a sermon he's never heard before. And when he's all done, Peter can, you can tell there's something in Peter's soul that is ignited right now. He's tired. He's worn out. He fished all night. He just got that headache. But listening to this guy talk, there's something there. He can't put his finger on it. There's just something there. And then, I love this, when he's finished, he sits down, looks at Peter, kind of smiles and says, Hey, why don't we go out some, up, back out the water and go fishing? Doesn't that sound like fun? Let's go fishing. He's fished all night. He's tired of fishing. Last thing he wants to do. By the way, fishing in those days wasn't casting a rod and waiting for the fish. These are nets. These are big, thick rope nets. You put them in the water. The water soaks up. I don't know if you ever pulled something heavy through the water. And you pull them up. It is very physical. And you cast them again. And you pull them up. That's how that worked. Right? I don't know how many times he pulled nets through water. and They were empty. But they were heavy every time. And so Jesus said, hey, you will be fun. You will be a good time right now. Let's go out fishing. Haven't been fishing. Let's go fishing. You can just imagine what Peter thinks. But watch what he says. Simon answers and says, Master, and he's like, term of respect. We worked all night. We caught nothing. I want you to feel that for a second because have you been there? Have you worked all night for nothing? I mean, a lot of us have worked all night. Have you worked all night for nothing? I have. In my, my day job, the one that pays me, I'm a programmer. I have worked many nights on a problem that I did not solve. And it actually gets worse as the night goes on right? Because you know I'm not thinking as well as I used to think. But now I'm angry and I'm just trying harder. And I, back in my mind, I thought like, you should go to bed, but I can't go to bed because I'm all upset now because this thing won't work. And I don't know if anybody's been there. But I'll tell you what, when you're working and you look up out the window or wherever you are and you see that sun coming up and you realize I have accomplished nothing and now I'm tired. Oh, that's a miserable night. That is a very miserable night. Some of you are nodding. You've seen, you know what I'm talking about. That's what he's saying here. I worked all night. I got nothing to show for it, right? But watch, he says, but you know what? Because you said so, at your word, I'll do it. There's nothing in me that wants to do this. I think it's a bad idea. And it isn't like Peter doesn't know how to fish. He's a professional. This man knows how to fish. These fish are not there. They're like deep, deep, deep down. There's nothing in him that makes him want to do this. He's only doing it because this guy who just got in his boat and preached a way he never heard and talked about a God he'd never seen said, you know what we should do? We should go fishing. And he says, okay, you know what? Because of that, I'll do it. You see, sometimes you can only know you've heard from God if you dare to do what he told you to do. And it's sometimes so stupid. And it's always small. You know, when God comes into your life and tells you to do something, and, and, and you're on the fence, it's never something that's like out of the ordinary for you. There is nothing more natural in the world for Peter than to go out and go fishing. He does it every day. Jesus wasn't asking him to do anything that he didn't feel comfortable doing. It just didn't make any sense to him. I understand how to fish, Jesus, but why now? I just came in because there's no fish there. Why would I do it now? It makes no sense. Yeah, I could do it. It'd be simple, but it makes no sense. A lot of times we never make a pass there with God. I know I could do that, but it makes no sense. I have this problem. In his case, he had a mother-in-law he thought was sick. She's already been healed. He doesn't know that. He's got he's got bills coming due. Those are the problems he has. I don't understand how this is going to help me. He could have said that. I'm just wasting my time now. I'm not doing that. I'll let you back off wherever you went. let off, but I need some sleep because i got to come back. I know how to fish, and this isn't going to work. Sometimes the only way you're going to know that God has spoken to you is if you do what he told you to do, even if it's really small and even if it doesn't even make sense. So they did. And when they had done this, as soon as the net hit the water, the fish that had been swimming away from him all night swam into the net. And as soon as it hit, the net moves and the boat sways instantly. Now, this does not pass by Peter unnoticed. He's pulling it back. He's a strong guy. He's pulled this thing a thousand times. But he's pulling it now, and it's resisting. And he's pulling, he's pulling, he can't get over it. And in fact, the nets begin to break. Now, it isn't like he was like, oh, man, I knew I shouldn't have bought these nets at Dollar General. I knew I should have gone down to Dixon bought the good nets, you know. These nets were made for this lake. He's a professional fisherman. So this is a professional fishing net. It's breaking now. Why? I believe... That Jesus is literally multiplying the fish in the net. The same miracle we're going to see in a few chapters here where he does it for the crowd. I think he's starting to do it right here. And I'll show you why. Because he calls out to his partners. There's a guy and there's actually, there's a helper there. He says, I need help. I got so many fish, I can't pull them in. They jump in that boat because, boy, i tell you what, when you're a fisherman and the fish are biting, you move, right? So he jumps that boat. He's getting, there, getting out there in record time. And they're all, they're helping, right? And they came and they filled both boats to the point they began to sink. Now, it never says they cast the net again. I want to show you that. It never says they cast the net twice. One net, filled two boats. I believe Jesus is multiplying fish. It's what Jesus does. And he's just sitting there smiling you know. Now here's what happens. Uh, Peter's world had just collided. He had his God world and he had his world and they just smashed together. And he knows it. Because he thought, well, the rabbis and stuff, they know about God and I know about fishing. But here's a rabbi who knows more about fishing than he does. He said, wow. Not only does he know everything about God, He's a better fisherman than I did. I would have never thought of doing this. I could have never done this. In fact, Peter had gone to the temple before to visit God in his world, but God just made Peter's boat a temple to visit with Peter. See, what Jesus is kind of showing him by the very action of jumping in a boat with him and letting him see that God can come right into your place of work and make it special and holy, right there, Jesus is saying there is no separation between your world and my world. In fact, there isn't God's world in our world. There's God's world, and we're living in it. This is what Jesus is basically showing him. I'm a better fisherman than you are. God knows more about everything than you do. And Peter gets it. In fact, when he sees this, he falls down Jesus' feet and says, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. You shouldn't be near me. I'm a sinful. Now, you have to understand why he says this. In those days, the Pharisees, when they would walk, because they were righteous, remember, they would ring bells. So people could scurry away from them. You couldn't touch someone who was clean if you were unclean. It would make them unclean. He'd have to go back and go through all his purification again. And so they would literally ring bells so people could scurry out of the way as they walked. Clean Pharisee coming through. And then when you, the, when you got to the temple, those Pharisees weren't even the most holy. There was a high priest, and he was really holy. And he was the only one who was allowed to enter into the part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. There was a special veil that was there, and he walked through it. No one else could go through there, just the high priest. So even the Pharisees had levels of purity, right? And the high priest was the only one. What Peter realizes is, I am sitting in front of somebody who is the holy of holies, and there's no veil between us. He says, Lord, you, you, you can't even touch me. I am so unclean in front of you. And Jesus says, doesn't matter. You touch me, I'm not going to be unclean. I'm going to make you clean. See, the Holy of Holies is there. And he's just telling him there's a whole new thing because I'm, he said, I'm not just some kind of temple exhibit that you come and visit on Sunday. I'm the living God. And he's breaking down the world between the wall between the worlds. And I think we've put that wall back up. I, I, I think that somehow uh, we have put this whole wall back up whereby we try to live a righteous life to show God what we can do. I'm going to impress God. I'm going to show uh, God, today I'm going to be righteous for you. Just watch. And we go off without God and try to be righteous. And we think, oh, I'll come back to God when I've worked this out. And we don't understand that God's always there. And, and just like uh, this kind of what Jesus, I think, is trying to show Peter, I'm always here. You may think there's this world, and that. There, there's just my world. And, and I'm here right now with you for a purpose and for a reason. The psalmist knows this. He says, where am I going to go to hide from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven and you are there, if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall hide me, even then the night is like light around you. The darkness shall not hide me. I think sometimes we think that in the darkness our sin can't be seen by God. And it's almost is saying, no. Whether you walk in light or you walk in the darkness, the Lord still sees you. He, Peter, Peter is a sinful man. Jesus knew that when he got in his boat. You're not tell me anything I don't know, Peter. I know you. I know everything about you. That's why I'm calling you to be the rock of my church. I understand who you are. I don't think you understand who I am. And there's not supposed to be a separation between us. Emmanuel, God with us. I came here to change all of that, right? In Jeremiah, he says it this way. My eyes, this is God speaking, are on all their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor is there sin concealed from my eyes. You think God doesn't see you when you sin? It's really weird to me, but sometimes we sin and we don't want to go to God right away. I need a, I need a, I, I can't, I can't go to God right now just because I'm so sinful. You think he doesn't know you're sinful? You think he didn't see you just sin? In fact, if we understood as we sin and God's watching us, weeping, I think we probably sin less. If we understood the cost our sin is to Him, then I think maybe it'd be easier for us. But we don't do that if we leave God and try to work out our righteousness and come back to Him when we don't. We have to be with Him at all times. The question isn't whether you walk in light or whether you walk in darkness. The question is, are you going to walk with the Lord or are you going to pretend He isn't there? Would you all please pray with me?